So as Stanley said, um, this is definitely a work in progress. And uh, liminal living is a new concept that I've been thinking about um, as I'm working again through my data and really trying to understand um, what it is about eating disorders and specifically about eating disordered experience that changes the way that people relate to the world around them and to the people in their lives. So with that in mind, um, liminality, I should say, has been a very useful and broadly applied concept in anthropology. Um, even though it started in studies of rituals and rites of passage, it has since been applied to almost every single area that we can think of. You know, airports are liminal, monasteries are liminal, um, and illness is liminal. So, in medical anthropology specifically, liminality has been applied to understanding conditions that connote ambivalence and ambiguity. Um, particularly chronic illness, also chronic pain, disability, and positions of risk. And um, I like to think of this as liminalities, actually, and not one kind of liminality, because we can see that the term has really been applied in different ways, you know, so we have a more narrative application of the term, and then we have an application that considers the embodied changes that inhere in chronic illness and the way that it suddenly makes the body present and it makes people relate to their bodies in new ways and have to reintegrate that into their experience themselves. So these are all very interesting and useful ways to think about chronic illness and also very interesting iterations of the term liminality. But something that really struck me is that in eating disorders, even though in many cases they are chronic illnesses, there's more happening than just these kinds of liminality. What's common to all of these liminalities is that they talk about a process where some sort of external force imposed from the outside, whether it's um, a new social role that the ill person is expected to accept or a new diagnosis, um, this sort of external force is making the person act. So the person is responding to something that happened to them, to an illness that happened to them, to a diagnosis that happened to them. Whereas in eating disorders, yes, there is this element of getting a diagnosis, of suddenly being ill, um, but there's also another element of liminality, and that is the seeking out of the liminal experience. Because eating disorder people don't just live with the liminality of illness, they actively seek a liminal life, which is a very different kind of experience. And that's really what this paper is going to explore, this liminal living and what the components of it are and what it does to people and for people and how it changes the way that they relate to the world around them. So before I begin, I should mention that liminality has also been applied in anthropological analysis of 
eating disorders um, in a broad range of ways. For example, Analytus talks about anorexia as a kind of liminal condition because what anorexia connotes is a process that's ongoing. You, you don't finish being anorexic, you kind of have to constantly perfect your anorexia until you reach a certain goal point that doesn't really exist. Um, but what I'd like to focus on in this introduction is um, sociologist Catherine Garrett's um, understanding of liminality and anorexia. She actually argues that anorexia itself is a liminal phase and that, like rites of passage, eating disorders separate the person from society, make the person go through initiation rites, and then the person can emerge as a different, more mature, more critical person and can be reintegrated into society. So that's a very interesting way of thinking about eating disorders, but my thinking diverges from that quite a bit because I see liminality in eating disorders not as a metaphoric thing, not necessarily as a phase in the maturation process, but more as a deeply embodied experience. So thinking about the different components of liminal living, I argue that centrally it is rooted in the embodied practice of eating disorders. So in binging, purging, starving, dietary restriction, ritualistic eating, also um, compulsive exercise, um, in some cases self-injury, like that whole range of practices that constitute um, eating disorder practice, as well as the sensory experiences that are associated with these practices. So again, we're thinking about hunger, emptiness, fullness, pain, all of these different kinds of experiences that really define what it is to be eating disordered. And so this takes us from a symbolic understanding of eating disorders and of eating and of liminality to an embodied understanding of these concepts. And it is centered in this idea of being in the world. And here I really would like to relate to Chortis's idea of embodiment where he emphasized that the body is the existential um, in this idea of being in the world, um, embodiment is the existential root of culture. It doesn't, it's not just made by culture, but it also makes it. And so in this case, in my understanding of liminal living, being liminal through eating disordered practice also allows for a way of making the world around you. That is, it influences the way that the person perceives and experiences the world, but it also influences the way that the world around the person experiences and perceives him or her. So there is a very important connection here between embodiment and between relatedness. And so in the living, the person is drawing inward and away. And by drawing inward, I mean thinking about those embodied practices that constitute eating disorders, the drawing inward is coming to this focus inside where the eating disorder practice 
concentrates one's being. And this concentration on practice moves the person away from the society around them and in a way then enacts new boundaries between the person and the world. And the world is really understood here as including not just the people in this person's world, but also just the sensory experience of the world. Sounds and scents and just the way that life is outside of that in this sort of bubble. And finally, and that's a very important part of liminal living, is that it's a sought-after mode of existence. When we were talking before about um, chronic illness and liminality, it seems like liminality is imposed from the outside. But here, really, you have an existence that people strive for. And once they achieve it, hold on to it. Because there is something very comforting about it, something very essential to survival. And um, so before I begin with um, showing you some data, I'd like to just point out that the rest of this presentation will be anchored in the participants' own words. So you'll basically just see quotes from now on. And I think it's important because obviously no one says, I wanted to practice liminal living. I mean, that's not a phrase that people use. But when I'm thinking about this phrase and when I'm constructing the concept, I'd like to go back to what the people themselves say and see how they describe that experience and use their words as much as possible. So, beginning with this quote, I think that it really says a lot about what it is to um, be in this movie. And um, this is a quote from a woman who recovered from, or began to recover from bulimia after about a decade of this eating disorder. And she told me that being eating disordered, she felt like she was looking at the world from behind an aquarium. She used the word aquarium. And that she was there in the aquarium, surrounded by water, very serene, and looking at the world move past. And it was okay. She didn't really feel like she was missing out on anything because she knew that once she got out of this eating disorder, she would actually participate in this life. But for now, it's okay to be in an aquarium, surrounded by water, and just looking at the world. So, limited living involved, in many cases, a sense of transcending reality. And the transcendence was quite profound in that it really did involve um, a deep embodied sense of not completely being a part of what is going on. And um, so this quote is from Emily. And um, she, at the time when I spoke to her, and that was in 2004. Five, she had already had anorexia for about 12 years, if not more. And um, during that interview, she told me that she still starved herself once every few days. And she started to describe what it felt like to starve herself. And um, that's what she had to say. It's always the same. At the beginning, it's very difficult, and you feel horrible, and you're very hungry. 
And then the morphine begins to work and everything's great. The body secretes morphine, not real morphine, but some substance which is very similar to it. So in anorexia, part of it is also addiction. You become addicted to that drug. It's simply as though they give you morphine all the time and you just live on morphine. You're not really connected to reality. There's some a sensation of like some sort of screen between you and reality where you are. You're not really in reality. There is some sort of delay. So I asked her if this experience was pleasurable and she actually seemed quite offended because she said there's no pleasure in anorexia. It's only suffering. But what morphine does is it makes hunger less acute. And she needed hunger to be less acute because hunger was very central to the definition of what she wanted to be, which was not to be a human being. Um, so in this kind of altered reality, she felt like the vision of the world was faded and she was always one step behind other people. And she actually said that she never got behind the wheel of the car because she just couldn't trust herself to have the kind of reaction time that was needed because she knew that she was living in the world, participating in the world, and she, you know, she had a career, she went to school, she was participating in the world, but always with a sort of faded vision, like she had a sort of soft-focused reality. So that was one kind of um, an embodied sense of not really being a part of things fully. And um, another iteration of this transcending of reality was in the way that eating disorder practice could create a separate space and time. And um, so this is, you know, I'm going to um, just tell you a story quite quickly. Um, one of the participants, her name was Shiri, she was, um, telling me the story of how she was um, recruited to the military seven years earlier, and um, much of her narrative of bulimia centered in that military period, and which she entered with a form of bulimia. And um, for her, um, the military was a very oppressive space. She felt like she had no privacy there. Um, many, many different girls had to sleep in the same room, and um, they didn't have time of their own. They had to work constantly. She felt like she, they were all more intelligent than she was. And so she found herself going every night to the officer's club to binge eat. And as she explained it, carrying the knowledge of having the ability to binge and purge gave her some peace of mind. It was a way, in her words, of finding her own minutes within the service. So she created a sort of separate time for herself, a sort of pocket of personal space where she could engage in her practice, and a time that was only her own. So. You know, so that's a different iteration, but again, I feel like both of these examples really speak to the kind of need to, while supposedly participating in society and in reality, um, have a private, personal, a different, liminal experience of that reality. 
So, as I said before, liminal living also had a lot of influence in the way that people related to the world around them. And um, the links between food eating, eating disorders, and relatedness have been explored to a great extent in the psychological literature, um, even in the earliest accounts of anorexia, like Lissette's um, Anorexia Historique, he talked about how anorexic women negotiate relationships with their parents through refusal of food. So, you know, there was this association from the very early times of the disorder being defined that there is a deep connection between commensality and uh, food refusal and the symbolic power of food, of sharing, of accepting what other people make for you, what they want you to eat. Um, but in this kind of relating, um, I'd really like to move away from the symbolics of food sharing and of accepting food from one's parents and look more into how the embodiment of eating disorder practice and the sensations thereof influence the way that people related to one another. So this quote um, came from Dahlia who had anorexia and bulimia alternating um, for about six years at the time. And she explained to me that this altered relatedness was a way of becoming more powerful in social relationships. And um, so this is what she said. Um, you're having a relationship with your eating disorder. You're not having a relationship with the world and you don't care about the world. You don't need food. You're not dependent on anything and you don't care about pain. My dad used to slap me. No big deal. I came to him. This is what I did to make it stop. I came to him and said, hit me. Why? Because if I had allowed him to hurt me and I would stand by and say to him, okay, I don't care, hit me. It's emotional disconnection. So he doesn't reach his goal. He doesn't control me. Hurt me and I won't care. I won't do what you want if you hurt me. And then you disconnect from your body. The same thing with food. I remember I told him, tell me how you'd feel if I'd beaten you up. He gave me his hand and I had no strength. I was a little girl. I hit him and he laughed. It was very humiliating, but I had no strength, like, so he didn't care. And I did exactly the same thing to him. I said to him, I don't care, I don't care. Let it hurt me. Do what you want, it doesn't affect me. And then I disconnected myself emotionally from these things. It also stopped because of that. He really tried not to be like that. It was part of his education. He stopped it because he understood it's harmful. He's not a bad guy. He just didn't know how else to cope. So Dahlia's story um, was both literal and metaphoric because she, there was the fact of her disconnecting from the pain of being beaten by her father and achieving the sort of power over him that she didn't have otherwise. But she also used it as a metaphor for her social relationships in general. Um, she told me she felt very powerless and, and very needful and very dependent on other people. And a way of getting rid of that need and of that desire for friendship and for acceptance was to begin with getting rid of the need for food. And once she didn't feel like she needed food anymore, she felt this power that she didn't need people anymore. And so 
it really, for her, it really protected her from relationships where she felt inferior and where she felt like she would have to give too much of herself up. And, um, you know, and so that's like one type of relatedness that we see in Liminal Living. And it actually repeated with other participants as well. Um, not everyone talked about not needing food. Some people actually talked about the power of food itself. So for them, for the people who practice binge eating, it was the binge that helped to disconnect them, that helped to make them feel full and alive with their self-sufficiency, like they didn't need anyone else because they had food. But there was another element. Um, again, that's a much talked about aspect of eating disorders. For some people, an eating disorder is a lover or a friend, and people sometimes name their eating disorder and, and really describe having a fully-fledged relationship with this idea or concept that's become personified. Um, for some of the participants in my study, it wasn't just the eating disorder, it was actually the food that became the center of that relationship. So we saw before a quote from Dee who was talking about living behind an aquarium. So she also explained to me that she had a very deep kind of loving relationship with food. And um, she talked about bulimia as a sort of anchor for her life. And she explained that she really felt uncomfortable with people and with herself around people. Um, so this is a quote from her. Um, with me, I knew there's no balance from the inside because there's something different every day, another period in life, different situations. Let's say I behaved with one person or at least felt with one person that I behaved one way and with another person that I behaved another way until I understood that a person has many facets and every time he can use another facet or combine them all, it took a lot of time. And the eating disorder, you know, is something fixed, something that doesn't change. You eat, you vomit, food like an entire ritual. There is nothing new here. It can't run away. I don't have to call it. I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't have to worry about me. It's just there all the time. And then she added, sometimes, I would walk around with lots of food in my bag and feel a warmth in my heart. So this was a person who actually found it very hard to have lasting relationships with people. She said she was very bad about keeping in touch. She lost a lot of friends. She was virtually estranged from many family members. She kept moving different jobs, different houses, cities. There were no roots, but it was okay as long as she had the eating disorder, and you know, and, and so the practice, the knowing that binging and purging was there for her, that she knew how she would feel when she binged, she knew how she would feel when she purged, all of that became an anchor and really altered the way that she related to other people and also the way that she experienced her need to be in a relationship with the world. So that a close um, component to relating is self-defining. And um, for many people, um, this me versus society aspect of liminal living was translated into a form of the eating disorder practice defines me. So 
This quote um, came from Hadass, who was recovering from bulimia when I met her, but she was really talking about an episode of anorexia that she had about eight, eight years earlier. At the same time, she said that even while recovering from bulimia, she still really reveled in hunger and she longed for that sensation constantly. And when I asked her what there was in, in that feeling, um, she said, no one can blame me that I ate. I know, I'm empty, I'm okay, like my body's empty. I didn't eat. Like, it's simply proof, and no one can tell me anything. Like, no one. I'm not what all of you think. I'm not the child who eats all day. I don't eat. And I'm, I'm not like all of you. You eat. Like, you're disgusting. I'm different. I'm empty. I'm floating about the surface of the earth. I'm, I'm doing what is necessary to do. Being empty is what is necessary to do. I'm not contaminated with all sorts of disgusting foods. So... For her, as a person who described years of being bullied as an obese child, having the ability to set herself apart from society and to say, I'm not contaminated, you are, I'm floating above the, above the surface of the earth, I'm not like the rest of you, was kind of empowering. Um, and notice also that even though she reached a very low weight um, when she was anorexic, she never actually mentioned that she was different from other people because she was of a very low weight. The point was she was different by the fact of her practice. She was different because she was constantly feeling hunger and emptiness, and they weren't. She was different because she was not ingesting the agents of contamination that they were. And um, I heard similar stories from other people with anorexia who talked about feelings of superiority, moments of euphoria, like um, this is another quote um, from a participant who had anorexia for about a decade and she said, um, there are those sensations of superiority which is what keeps anorexics alive in my opinion, some sort of power that you're like above everybody else, you're pure, you're clean, and the admitting that you're hungry is like, I felt that I'm not clean, that I'm not pure, and that was the sensation I aspired to reach. So again, this is interesting because, right, Hadass said being hungry imbued her with this sort of self-defining I versus society, whereas like for this other person that I just quoted for Vered, hungry was actually bad. It was like being hungry meant being human, being like the rest of them, the point was not to feel hunger. So again, like there wasn't one way in which participants experienced that embodiment, but the point was there was some kind of embodied difference that they focused on that really made them feel like they were apart from society. Um, but, you know, speaking of anorexia, in this context is quite different from speaking of bulimia, even though I normally don't like to separate the two because I think they do exist on a continuum. But you know, you don't really hear about like bulimic superiority. We did hear about anorexic superiority, but not so much about bulimia. But I did hear interesting iterations of um, bulimic practice as being self-defining. And um, a, a really prominent discourse was uh, the natural versus the unnatural, the normal versus the abnormal. And so I have a quote here that's really um, illustrative of that. And that quote came from Mira, who had eating disorders, including 
a range of um, self-starvation um, for about 20 years. And um, she spoke of bulimia as a sort of embodied rebellion against the place that she perceived um, society had allotted her. So um, she talked about it after recovering. In hindsight, it was something very, very healthy, those binges. It was the most authentic thing I had in life, and I enjoyed them. I also enjoyed vomiting. I loved vomiting. There's something releasing like that. I'm doing something against nature. It's something very forceful. No, childish. But there's something, a power in that childishness. It's not that I'm accepting life with surrender. Today I have a bad mood, I feel disgusting, but I bow my head. I accept that I'm feeling bad. But here the bulimic says, no, I don't accept it. I'm fighting. I'll go. I'll... Do you understand? It's something standoffish, powerful, charming. Later you have to give it up. You say, come on, I'll be boring if I won't be bulimic. I'll be like everyone else. I'll go to work, come back, kids. Such boredom. Death, death, death. Here I have action. I eat, I vomit, I have fantasies, I'll have the perfect day. I'll have the perfect life. So... This was like a very elaborate um, way of explaining this, but I think that she really articulated this idea very well, and it's something that I heard from other participants with bulimia, the idea that, you know, maybe I'm not superior to other people, but I'm doing something they can't do. And it would come out in different ways, like people would explain to me the size of their binges by appealing to the contrast with an imaginary normal person who could never even imagine consuming this much food or who would think about how much they ate and probably be extremely disgusted. So, again, you know, it was quite distinct from anorexic superiority, but both kinds of discourses really, um, to me at least, um, show that there is a certain self-defining power in the eating disorder practice itself and in the sensations that it imbues the person with. So finally, surviving. Um, a very interesting and probably the most crucial part of liminal living was that many participants considered <coughs> it literally life-saving and, and essential to, to their being. And um, this particular quote, um, came from a woman who was one of the more extremely ill people that I've met. And um, she was actually disabled by her eating disorder. And she was on the brink of imminent um, danger when she basically told me that binging and purging was essential to her continued survival. Um, so this is what she said more fully. I protected it as though, like I didn't let anyone to dare think about taking it away from me, because that's what gives me the strength to go on and survive. Like, it's, I always use terms such as, it's my medication, because people, it's difficult for them to understand it, because they say, on the one hand, it's what's killing you, but on the other hand, you say it's your medication. But yes, it's like that. And for me, the, that paradox was really profound because, you know, she also had severe electrolyte imbalance. And she knew that every time she purged could be her last. But she still couldn't imagine living without, without binging and purging. I remember I asked her once if she, 
ever imagined a day when she wouldn't binge and purge? And she said, well, it would be good if she had 24 hours and if she could decide to do it whenever she wanted to do it afterwards. She couldn't really imagine a life without it. And she explained to me that the practice was a sort of invisible shield, or in her words, it disconnects me. When I'm into the food, I disconnect. Also, when I'm like after vomiting, like I feel more, it's very difficult to describe it, like it guards me somehow, like from the world, from people. Like I have something of my own that protects me, and when I do it, it gives me some strength to continue surviving. So she felt really that the world was oppressive. It was oppressive because um, it was full of bad memories of childhood abandonment and neglect, but it was also full of like present tense, sensory over stimulation, penetrative voices, annoying people, the threatening unboundedness of the streets. I mean, she would hardly ever leave the house. Um, you know, so there was this idea that just as she tried to create a protective, bounded, private space for herself inside her home, where she wouldn't be bothered by the sensory world outside, she also couldn't really imagine negotiating the world or the pain that it made her feel without the practice that helped her also create a sort of protected space for herself. And you know, the alternative, as she saw it, was death. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that comes up quite frequently. Um, one of my interest, very interesting conversations with a participant with whom, a participant with whom I followed up um, this past summer was uh, really centered around um, this idea that eating disorders are paradoxical. And she, um, that participant, had um, already recovered, but she said, you know, that she was still amazed by the fact that eating disorders can destroy your life and save your life simultaneously. And she said it, and those were her words. And, you know, there was a pervasive sense that for many people, um, eating disorders offered um, a sort of protective bubble. Um, someone actually told me that he saw his disorder as a suicide in minor key, or um, you know, a sort of like way of embodying the feeling of dying without actually going all the way with stopping and being able to go back and live. And um, one participant described it in a very eloquent way. I mean, it's, it was quite amazing um, when she said it. And that was, there is a life you don't want to live. And there's death. And there is in the middle one bubble, which is life, but is not life in the world where you don't want to live. And is not death. And it's in between. On the one hand, you live a little, live this life of this world. And on the other hand, you're going in the direction of annihilation, annihilating all the bad things you're sure are inside you. So, we're basically running out of time, but I wanted to end on a positive note, which is people did emerge from that bubble. And, um, 
that person who told me that anorexia was a way of fulfilling a need to go through dying without actually death. Um, he also provided this beautiful quote, which basically said, um, there is a point where many of the participants chose life because the bubble, the in-between, the liminal living was not sustainable. And, um, you know, so there, that's the point of choice and that's not really the point of this talk, but I thought, you know, should end on something more hopeful and more positive and, um, and I'm actually going to talk about this in a future talk. So, finally, the implications of liminal living. So I think um, the concept might be useful in two areas, namely um, embodiment-centered analyses of eating disorders and adaptation. So with embodiment-centered analyses, um, we've seen a lot of work, particularly for Megan Warren, that's been taking us back um, to the idea that eating disorders are very sensory and that we should attend to the eating disorder experience if we are to understand what eating disorders are all about. And very significantly, she places the eating disorder experience and in particular this feeling of disgust and the classification of the world and of body parts and of foods into clean and um, dirty um, as the locus of relatedness and Warren really shows how relatedness and objection coexist and how they, they exist in, a, in an interesting dialogue where they co-implicate each other. And so with liminal living I think it contributes to that strain of thinking where we're really positioning the lived body, the lived eating disorder body at the center of this understanding of the social world of people with eating disorders. And with respect to adaptation, this is kind of a discarded idea in anthropology these days, um, but basically um, in the past um, some evolutionary biologists tried to claim that um, eating disorders had to have an adaptive element and you know, they centered this adaptation on ideas of intrasexual competition and um, fertility maximization. So, I mean, obviously they were um, disregarded largely. Um, but, you know, an adaptation was also part of some early psychoanalytic work on adolescence. So, like, Anna Freud's idea of, like, this sort of adaptive asceticism that some adolescents go through as a way of um, maturing and, you know, that it's actually a positive and not a negative thing. Um, but, you know, I think this concept of liminal, liminal living reclaims adaptation and maybe offers an alternative and possibly more empirically grounded um, explanation of the adaptive element in eating disorders in, in that it, it really shows how through embodied practice and through embodied sensations, people with eating disorders can negotiate a world that they feel unable to live in, but somehow position themselves in a sort of protective bubble that allows some of them at least to emerge later 
and to continue living um, rather than succumb to the suffering and the pain that they feel unable to cope with otherwise. So I'll finish here um, and ask me questions.